It's blasphemy. Um, I just spent a week in 95 degree sun on the beach. It was beautiful. Hallelujah. And all God's people said, amen. <laughs> uh, what an amazing trip. And uh, I knew back when I had first heard about the trip, and I'll share, like I said, I'll share more with you in the weeks ahead. Um, but if we can go ahead and bring the volume down a little bit more, because um, I'm not being very loud yet still, and, and I'm, I probably will. I'll try to contain myself, but you know. Um, but when the, fir- the trip first came, I knew, uh, I knew in my heart I needed to go. I knew that the Lord was setting this up, and uh, I told my wife that, and uh, eventually she just said, you know, if you know you're supposed to go, just go. But, but I don't like trips like this, okay? My flesh doesn't. And so, um, you know, I don't like to go new places. I don't like to try new things. I, I'm a creature of habit, and I just like things the way they are, and if nothing ever changes, I'm good with that. Um, and so, I, um, I, as I went on the trip, though, the Lord just confirmed so many times throughout the trip that, um, that he brought me there. And uh, we, we partner with uh, two workers in the country of Myanmar, and uh, we have been a part of what God is doing there, because they've been there for a few years now, and we've been supporting them and giving to them. And uh, what, what I'll share with you in the future is, is, a, is a credit to us. I mean, we are uh, hand in hand with them, and so to be able to see uh, what we've been a part of was just uh, fascinating to me. And uh, I fell in love um, with the Asian culture. I fell in love with the people of Asia. They are such an honoring people and uh, so just so loving and so uh, gracious. Even, uh, even the unbelievers, the Buddhists, are just uh, such honoring and merciful people. And so, um, uh, like I said, I'll share more with you in the future. And so... Um, just kind of be watching for that. The first week of March, Sunday morning and Sunday night. So if you kind of want to mark that on your calendar, that's probably the date uh, we're going to go with. But I'll try to let you know this week. Um, we've been in a series here called Put Away the Toys. Uh, this series started way back in August. It feels like forever ago um, now. And especially for me this week, it just kind of feels like uh, I've done a complete left turn. At first it did, but uh, I really feel like God is saying something through this message again, and uh, I, know that, uh, I know that this is what he wants to say to us today. And uh, this comes from a book by Eugene Peterson called Perseverance, The Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And what this book does is it takes the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent are found in Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. These are songs that the Jews would sing as they traveled to Jerusalem. Three times a year, they had to go to Jerusalem to worship God because God's presence dwelled in Jerusalem. For the Old Testament believer, if you wanted to go into God's presence, you didn't just call on the name of Jesus because Jesus hadn't come. You went to the temple. Uh, you know, sometimes I think we, we forget what we have. That at any moment, I can call him, uh, on the name of the Lord and he's, he's there. Even beyond that, he lives in us. His presence is with us all the time. Feel it or not feel it, he's with us uh, in, the, in the person of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And so um, they would travel there to worship the Lord, to be in his presence in obedience to his command. And they would sing these songs as they go. And so we've looked at each of these and each of them has been given a one-word title. And these are the, the titles that have been chosen by Eugene Peterson. Uh, most of the stuff that I've shared with you comes directly from his book. 
And uh, when I felt like God wanted us to go through this series uh, using the message translation of the Bible, uh, I know that some of you are real excited about that, and you're, you're even more excited today that we're still going to be in the message. But uh, uh, I, th- I know that God is sharing with us some specific things. And uh, as we've gone through the series, I have felt it. I know that many of you have felt it and talked about it. And we are on this spiritual journey. The same way that they physically traveled to Jerusalem, up to the presence of God, we are on a spiritual journey, traveling to the presence of God. And each of these psalms has kind of helped us in that process. And so today, uh, we're talking about obedience. Now, I don't, some of the chapters, I just didn't like the title, but I left them because he wrote it and, you know, it is what it is. But I would call this maybe hunger or intimacy. But I get where he's coming from with obedience. You will too as we cover it. But So whatever you want to write on your notes, obedience, hunger, intimacy, you put it. But Psalm 132, if you want to look in your Bible, you can. I'll be reading from the message version again. And since many of you may not have that, uh, I put it on the screen for you today. But this is what it says. Oh God, remember David. Remember all his troubles. Remember how he promised God, made a vow to the strong God of Jacob. I'm not going home, and I'm not going to bed. I'm not going to sleep, not even taking time to rest, until I find a home for God, a house for the strong God of Jacob. Remember how we got the news in Epaphrath, learned about it in Jar Meadows? We shouted, let's go to the shrine dedication. Let's worship God, worship at God's own footstool. Up, God, enjoy your new place of quiet repose. You and your mighty covenant ark. Get your priests all dressed up in justice. Prompt your worshipers to sing this prayer. Honor your servant David. Don't disdain your anointed one. God gave David his word. He won't back out on this promise. One of your sons will set on your throne. If your sons stay true to my covenant and learn to live the way I teach them, their sons will continue the line. Always a son to sit on your throne. Yes, I, God, chose Zion, the place I wanted for my shrine. This will always be my home. This is what I want. I'm here for good. I'll shower blessings on the pilgrims who come here. Give supper to those who arrive hungry. I'll dress my priests in salvation clothes. The holy people will sing their hearts out. Oh, I'll make the place radiant for David. I'll fill it with light for my anointed. I'll dress his enemies in dirty rags, but I'll make his crown sparkle with splendor. Father, I pray that today you'd help us to see the truth of your word. Help us to understand it in our hearts. And then Holy Spirit, help us to apply it to our lives in a way that transforms us from this day forward. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. John Calvin once said that true knowledge of God is born out of obedience. True knowledge of God is born out of obedience. Psalm 132 is a psalm about obedience. Psalm 132 is one of the oldest psalms in the entire Bible. It's included in the Psalms of Ascent because it models for us this journey into God's presence. It talks about the importance of obedience. It tells us that obedience has a proven historical track record. It reminds us that obedience has a promise of a better future. It's a psalm about David's obedience, how he promised God 
made a vow to the strong God of Jacob. Then it reminds us of God's reward for obedience to the succeeding generations. The first half of Psalm 132 that's on the screen is the historical record of obedience and then its result. This psalm takes a single incident from the past and then it reminisces about it. It's the history of the Ark of the Covenant. The psalm talks about the time of remembering it. Remember when we went up to the shrine dedication to worship at God's own footstool. And it talks about God now enjoying this place of quiet repose. The Ark of the Covenant was a box. It was approximately 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, 27 inches deep. It was constructed of wood, but it was covered with gold. It, had sol- it was solid gold, and it had a place on top called the mercy seat. If you remember from our study on Wednesday night or Sunday school this morning, Strengthen Yourself in the Lord, we talked a little bit about this. The two cherubim, the angels that were on top of this, stood at either end of the top facing each other. They framed a space in the center called the mercy seat. Exodus chapter 25 shows us that, uh, how this box was to be put together. It was made under the supervision of Moses at that time. For the people of Israel, it was a symbol of God's presence among them. The ark accompanied them from Mount Sinai where it was made through all of their wanderings in the desert. Then the ark of the covenant had been kept at Shiloh from the time it was brought into the promised land. When Joshua brought the people into Israel, into the promised land, they stored it at Shiloh. Now, one of the times, the Israelites went to battle against the Philistines, and they were beaten. They remembered the Ark of the Covenant. And so they went to Shiloh, and they got it. And they bring it into the camp. 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 7 tell us this story. And when they bring it into the camp, they, they get excited. They have a worship service. It's so loud that the ground shakes. Okay? Their enemies, the Philistines, hear about it, and they're terrified. The gods have come into their camp. The Philistines know about the God of Israel. They've heard about it. They've heard what he did to the Egyptians. They've heard how they drove the people out of the promised land where they are. And so they like rally themselves and say, let's fight with all of our might. Scared to death of what's going to happen. They carry the ark into battle. And the Philistines defeat them. Not only do they defeat them, Saul and his son Jonathan are killed. The ark of the covenant is captured. And the funny story that we heard in Strengthen Yourself in the Lord, they take it to the temple of their God and it kind of wreaks havoc on their God. And so they pass it from city to city because it's messing things up. It's causing sickness among the people. And so then they send it back to the land of Israel. And it comes to a little village called Kiriath-Jerim. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Kiriath-Jerim. And it stays there for 20 years. It blesses this man. It blesses his household. I mean, the presence of God basically lives with these, in this little village and uh, the blessing of God is on them. Saul, excuse me, Saul hadn't been killed in that battle. They, they captured the ark, they took it and they brought it. Um, Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, were killed in battle. Then Saul becomes king. 
excuse me, Saul becomes king. Now, when Saul becomes king, he ignores the Ark of the Covenant. Nowhere in the reign of Saul is the Ark of the Covenant talked about. It's just left in this little village called Kiriath-Jerim. David, 20 years later, goes to get it and brings it to Jerusalem, the place of honor, Zion. Okay, Zion in the Old Testament is the word for Jerusalem, God's temple. He leads Solomon to build a temple to house the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. Now, the people of Israel journey to where that is. God set it up. It was his design. Even though it was David's idea, like David has it in his heart, I want to make a temple for God to live in. David is amazing. David in the, in the Old Testament becomes a prototype of the New Testament believer. He does stuff that captures the heart of God. Imagine God saying, I love you so much that I'm going to bless your descendants forever and all of them are going to sit on my throne. Jesus is a descendant of David. Because David captured something that Saul didn't capture, a love for the presence of God. The history of the ark for the Hebrews is kind of like a theological handbook. It provides for them kind of this account of the presence of God. The history of the ark showed the importance of having God with you. At the same time, it also showed the danger of trying to just carry God around. The ark was a symbol, not just the reality. I mean, yes, the presence of God was upon the ark of the covenant, but God did not live in the box. I mean, even when David says, I'm going to build a temple for God, God says, who can build a temple to house me? <laughs> but he allowed them to build the place where his presence, at least part of it, dwelled. When the ark was treated flippantly or like a magical device, it didn't work out so well. That was part of the history of the ark. But it also, it reminded us that God cannot be just contained or used. The psalm doesn't tell us all this. It just kind of remembers it. But there's enough in this psalm for the, for the Jews that are singing this, they remember the story. We don't. For them, the, like for us, the story of Jesus, when we talk about the cross, I mean, we get all of that. We hear it all. We know it. And if I just told you a little bit, it would trigger in your mind these memories. I went through them for us because they don't trigger the same memory for us like they would for the Jews. But the Jews would know it. They, they knew this history. They studied it. They passed it on. And so this psalm was sung by them every time they traveled to Jerusalem. And the story comes alive for them again and again especially the part when David rediscovered the ark in this obscure little village. The part where David determined to take the presence of God and set it at the center of life for Israel. They would remember that. Remember how we heard the news in Epaphrath, learned about it at Jar Meadows. See, David had heard about where the ark was. And he vowed to get it. And he was obedient to that vow. So he gathered the people to himself. And he says, let's go to the shrine dedication. Let's worship at God's footstool. And he goes and he gets the ark and he brings it to Jerusalem with this massive festive parade. And he says this, 
up, God. Enjoy your new place of quiet repose. You and your mighty covenant ark. Get your priests all dressed up in justice. Prompt your worshipers to sing. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, it says that during this procession, David danced with great abandon before God. The whole country was with him, and he brought the ark of God with shouts and trumpet blasts. And so these people that are, are on this pilgrimage to worship at the temple where God's presence dwells are on this same path. They're journeying this same pilgrimage that David took. And as they do, and as they sing this psalm, they're reminded about David's failed attempt. The first time he went to get the ark, he didn't get the ark. Remember the story? He put it on a cart. And they were going to wheel it. It's not very big. It's not that heavy. And they're going to wheel it to Jerusalem. But in the law of Moses, God said nobody, the only people that are supposed to touch the ark are, and they're to carry it for them. He outlines how this is supposed to take place. And so some poor guy named Uzzah, when the ox stumble and the cart, you know, make, makes a move and the ark is going to fall, just re, all he does is reach out to, to steady it. He doesn't want God's presence to be damaged. <laughs> and he dies. Yeah, that's not funny. And David, the, the ark goes aside and lives with some guy. David just leaves it there. He's like, how can, I, how can I bring the presence of the Lord? The reason that David couldn't bring the ark the first time was laziness and neglect. See, David, there was something in his heart that said, I want to be in the presence of God. And so he went to get the ark, but he didn't study the word. He didn't see how did the ark, how does the presence of God need to be transported? He took it for granted that just because the Lord has put in my heart to do this thing, that I can do it any way I want to. No. Obedience is very important to the Lord. There's a protocol that he sets up and asks us to follow. And so David somehow begins to study the word, learns how to handle the ark, and then he takes priests with him. And not only that, David goes over the top. Every seven steps, they stop for a sacrifice. An 11-mile journey. And he stops every seven steps to sacrifice before the Lord. And the entire time, they're shouting, singing, dancing before the Lord. That's how much the presence of God meant to him. I want it by me. I want it in Jerusalem. Saul went through his entire reign. Never once do we hear about the ark. David, it's in his heart. He goes to get it, and he comes. We have to learn to honor the presence of the Lord. Just because the Lord puts something in our hearts doesn't mean we get to do it any way we want to. There's a protocol. The scripture outlines ways that as believers we're to behave, how we're to live. And sometimes the Lord puts something in our hearts and we act in a way contrary to what the word says to do. And then we wonder why the blessing of God doesn't reside in our lives. Obedience is not God's reward for us being good little boys and girls. God doesn't reward us because, oh, look at you, you've, you've been a good boy. Obedience is the path that God says, this is the way to my presence. 
okay? God doesn't reward us with his presence because we've behaved ourselves. We get into his presence because we've obeyed his word and we follow the path to get there, just like following a map. I mean, if I plug in my GPS where I'm going and I get there, it's not like I got there because I was a good boy. I got there because I followed the map. Some of us as American Christians, number one, don't have a desire to be in the presence of God. We're much like the people of Israel that, were, that we talked about. I mean, we, we want God when we're in a tight jam with the Philistines, and so we rub the Bible like a genie in a bottle, and we just want God to come out, and we wonder why the presence and power of God doesn't work. Because we took it for granted. That's not how it operates. God didn't send his son to die on a cross so we could, you know, every once in a while rub the Bible and see if something pops out. He did it so we could live in his presence. In, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the apostle Paul says, this is God's promise. I want to I live among you. I want to dwell among you. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to live among you. That's the heart of God. He wants it. So when God says, I want you to, to do this, this is the way to get into my presence. And when you get there, you're going to find that that's where you want to be. Some of us don't have that desire. Some of us have the desire, but we try to get there our own way. We try to make a cart that will carry the presence of God somewhere. And God says, you're not going to get there that way. You gotta follow me. You gotta study my word. You gotta know what I've said. And I'm gonna show you. I'm gonna reveal it to you. I'm not gonna make this hard. This isn't something that you, you gotta like get a, a master's of divinity so that you're able to understand. I'm gonna make it plain. I'm gonna make it simple. And as you just obey the first thing I've told you to do, I'm gonna make the next step clear. And as you obey that step, I'm gonna make the next step clear. But some of us don't wanna obey that first step and we want step seven and God says, you, you can't go that way. There's no shortcuts. Just follow me. And if we'll learn to trust his way over our own, and if we learn to lay aside our earthly preferences in pursuit of something greater, we're going to find what it is to live in the presence of God. Have you and I made the presence of God the central thing in our lives? Is him living, his presence living in our lives what we want more than anything else? Think about that for a minute. I know that we want his benefits. I know that we want to take him into battle against our enemy. I know that we want to recite his promises and his commands. And I know that. The question is, do we want his presence? Do we want his presence? Like Moses on Mount Sinai that said, God, if you don't lead it, when, when God said to Moses, he says, I'm tired of these people. They're stiff-necked. They don't do anything I ask them to do. So go ahead and take them to the promised land. I'm going to send an angel with you. They're going to drive out your enemies, and I want you to go. And Moses says, God, if your presence does not go with us, do not take us up from here. Don't take us up from here. 
I want your presence, even if I have to live at the foot of the mountain in the desert before I go to the promised land. Why? Because Moses understood. Moses had the best Egypt had to offer. But the scripture tells us in Hebrew chapter 11, he set it aside because he was looking for a greater kingdom. The presence of God is better than a nice house, a nice car. I mean, I just, I lived with people, or I sat with people this week, the size of that fireside room, a house where 16 people live. And the joy and contentment and hunger for the presence of God. Just mind-boggling. We have too much stuff around us that keeps us from this thing that we need. And, and here's the thing. I don't want to get at myself. Too many of us are content to attend church and go through the religious routine just like the people of Israel. We're content to celebrate God's promises and his power and, and we're frustrated. We're frustrated by the lack of power, the unfulfilled promises, but yet we've never chosen to make his presence central. Central. Our rituals and our routines are important to us. His presence must be central. In the early 1900s, there was a renewed interest in Pentecost, in an experience, in a power with, with the Holy Spirit, with God himself. It's about presence. It's not about tongues. It's not about gifts. It's not about miracles. It's about presence. His presence comes with power. His presence comes with signs. His presence comes with this new language that empowers us. But his presence is more than that. Because in the time when it seems like my prayer is not answered or the miracle is not coming, his presence is enough for me. It's enough for me. And so I don't slip into disappointment. I don't slip into, because I have all I need. Him. I still long for the breakthrough. I still long for the miracle. I still long for God's power to be displayed, to set captives free. But in the meantime, I just love that he's with me. Our methods and our activities are good, but those things are only meant to help us make his presence central. Even the gift of tongues that we receive at the baptism in the Holy Spirit is so that we will build ourselves up in our most holy faith, praying in the Spirit. And we make that central. And we forget to use that as a tool to get us into the presence of the Lord because His presence is central. We hear a lot about the prosperity gospel these days. I try to usually stay away from stuff like this because I don't always handle it well. So I'm concerned talking about this with jet lag. <laughs> but the prosperity gospel, in my understanding, is just an overemphasis on promises devoid of presence. 
Overemphasis of promise, void of presence. The promises are there. They're true. But when we seek the promises and not the presence, then it becomes a misguided thing. But when we seek the presence, the promises come behind. Because then the promises don't steal our heart away from His presence. The danger is, because of the prosperity gospel, we, we tend to run away from the promises. And we tend to stop expecting miracles and stop expecting God to, to work the way He's promised to work. We can't do that either. Go after His presence, and in His presence, His power will be displayed. And sometimes his power will be displayed just helping us walk through some of the hardest stuff we've ever walked through. And that's good too. The litmus test for whether we're prosperity gospel or just presence seekers <laughs> is our response to spirituality and our, our spiritual response to blessing and difficulty. That's the litmus test. Are they the same? Is my response to blessing and difficulty the same spiritually. That's the litmus test. Okay? That's how we know what we're going after. We have got to make this all about His presence. Psalm 132 tells the history to activate obedience in our hearts, to say, hey, this is what we're after. Then it gives us a balanced prosperity gospel, if you will, because the second half of Psalm 132 goes into the, the future. Look at, what it's, look at what it says. The second half of the psalm doesn't just talk about the past now. The second half of the psalm talks about what God has planned in the future. The psalmist knows the past, but he doesn't just talk about the past to revel in it. The Bible talks about the history. The Bible talks about the past. It tells every generation, pass on what God has done in your generation to the next generation. But you know what the Bible never does? It never refers to the past as the good old days. Very positive. Never. Because in the kingdom of God, the past is never better than the future. Never. Because God always has something better in store. And our job in our generation is to pass on the character, the nature of God to the next generation so they dream and believe and hope that God is going to do it again in their generation. We can't just pass on the methods. We can't just pass on the history. We have to pass on the presence of the Lord. And it changes. It changes from generation to generation. Not His presence. How we get into His presence. We cannot cling to the past for the past's sake. We have to use the past to get us where we're going. Into His presence. And so the second half of the psalm tells us what's in store for those who walk down this path. Look what it says. I'll shower blessings on the pilgrims who come here. 
I will give supper to those who arrive hungry. I'll dress my priests in salvation clothes. By the way, that's us. We're the priests. The holy people will sing their hearts out. Look at what it says we'll do. We'll sing our hearts out. When's the last time you sang your heart out to the Lord for his presence? All of these verbs are in the future tense. Future tense. Showing us that what's in the future is better than where we have been. Obedience is fulfilled by hope. And all of these hopes are attached to the history. As they hear about this, their mind, these Israelites, their minds are going to go back to the time God gave them water from the rock, the time that manna was provided from the ground and the quail fell from the skies. But that memory is going to remind them God wants to provide for them today the same. Not the same way. Quail won't fall from the sky. Manna won't come up from the ground. But he is still Jehovah Jireh, my provider. And that's what the psalmist is trying to get. He doesn't want them to just celebrate the past for the sake of the past. He wants us to begin to experience him in the presence. God still promises that he will fill those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's his promise to us. He's going to dress us in salvation clothes. He's going to give light, radiant light for our lives. Then look at this. The shame of God's enemy and the glory of God's king will be decisive. The triumph is going to be complete. Evil will lie sprawling in defeat and righteousness is going to flurry. That's the agenda for obedience. And that's what he did through the cross. That's what he's done for us. And so we take this pilgrimage just like they did, even though we're not traveling to Jerusalem, we're traveling into the presence of the Lord. And even though he's in us and he's with us, we're still on a journey. I want to live in the presence of the Lord. There are men and women on this planet today that live in the presence of the Lord better than I do. I read about them, I listen to them, I study them, but at the end of the day, I gotta do what the word says to do so that I can go where they've gone. I mean, hearing their testimonies inspires us, but hearing their testimonies won't do it for us. We've gotta take the same walk. And we can't be content to do it our way. Psalm 132 is a reminder that God has always wanted to interact with us. He wants to live among us. He wants us to value his presence and walk after it the way he's revealed it. We cannot treat his presence like a lucky charm. We cannot be content to just show up in a church service. I mean, we could have had a worship time this morning that actually shook the ground and the neighbors over there would have come over to find out what was going on and nothing would have changed in our lives. That's what they did. 
They brought the, the, the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, into the camp. It shook the ground, and then they were defeated. And so I love church. I love worshiping. I love what we do here. I believe it's biblical what we do here. Come together, sing some songs, hear from the Spirit, speak to each other, encourage one another, pray together, hear the Word. All of that's important. It's not enough. Every single one of us has to make a determination, just like David. Look what he says. I'm not going home. I'm not going to bed. I'm not going to sleep. I'm not taking time to rest until I find a home for God. Now, I know we're not saying you're never going to sleep again. But does that describe us? Does that describe how desperate you and I are for the presence of God to dwell in our lives in a greater way than it has before? If it doesn't, it's time for repentance. It's time to say, God, I, I need that. Put the spirit of David into my heart so that I long for your presence that way. How many of you say, I want that. I want that. I long for that in my life. David understood the blessing of having God's presence. He went after the ark to bring it where he was. He didn't let a failed attempt keep him from bringing it. He learned to follow God's way and then God blessed him for it. The thing about David is it breaks all protocol. I want to look what time it is. It breaks all protocol. I mean, David's doing stuff with this ark. He sets it up in a tent. They worship it. I mean, he's doing stuff that he shouldn't be allowed to do. He is getting access to the Ark of the Covenant that only the high priest was supposed to get once a year. How is that possible? I have no idea. All I know is this. He was a man after God's heart. And he got to the point where he so touched the heart of God that God just started dumping on David. And he was imperfect. He did all kinds of stuff he shouldn't have done. It cost him. But even when his son rose up and said, Absalom rose up and tried to take the throne from him, David left. He's like, if God's finished with me on the throne, I'm, I'm okay. I just want him. He's all I want. He's all I want. See, the reason God was able to shower all kinds of stuff like this on David is because David was a man after God's heart. If we try to just go after the promises of God and we're not people after his heart, those promises won't come. And even if they do come, they'll ruin us. They'll ruin us. I don't want them. I don't want anything that I'm not ready to carry. Bill Johnson says, God reserves the right to say no to any prayer that will keep us from his will for our lives. And so I know all of the promises are yes. And I know that the amen is spoken by us. We need to be a people after his heart. 
I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. And um, they've been so amazingly flexible today. I'm going to pray God blesses them for that. I learned on my trip to be flexible. I told my wife, I'm going to be really flexible for like two weeks until it wears off. So if, if you want anything, just ask me now. We have got to be people after his heart. We have got to be people after his heart. What a shame that David in the Old Testament would catch this and we who have the Holy Spirit in us would miss it. God help us not to. Let's stand together. We're going to sing this simple song that we sang earlier in the service. And if this is your prayer, I just want you to respond however the Lord wants you to respond today. It just simply says, you're all I want. You're all I want. And see, here's the thing. Some of you sitting here today maybe are starting to feel guilty and you're like, you know, he's not all I want. That's all right. Sing it by faith. Lord, you're all I want to want. If you want to come around the altar, you can. If you want to be where you are. But I want us to conclude this service today. As we sang this song earlier, I thought, that's how we got to finish. He's all I want. He's all I want. God, make us a people after your heart. Make us like your servant David. God, he caught something in the Old Testament that many of us in the New Testament haven't even caught. We want to catch it. God, we want to catch the spirit of David. We want to be men and women after your heart. God, we're grateful for your promises. We're grateful for your displays of power. God, above all, we want to know you. 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 Impart that heart to us today. Draw me close to you. Never let me go.
needed. Holy Spirit, expose in our lives the new carts that we've built. Expose the places where we've become complacent and lazy. God, where we've not diligently sought to be people after your heart. God, remove everything that hinders us from pursuing you. You are what we want. You are what we need. God, make us a people after your heart. God, we want to be a people that can live for the glory of your name. God, we want to see you set captives free. We want to see you open blinded eyes. God, we want to see you raise the dead. We want to see you bring salvation to all men. God, we want to make, we want to be people after your own heart. God, people that can be carriers of your presence, that your glory can be seen everywhere we go. Holy Spirit, speak clearly and plainly to our hearts today. Show us the steps that we need to take. Show us how to conform our lives with the truth of this word today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can spend time in prayer if you would like. If you need to be dismissed, again, just do it quietly. Let this be a place of prayer for those that want to spend some time in prayer. God bless you as you go today.